it's uh, very strange to be English congregation and be the only one who doesn't have an accent. <laughs> they were great years, uh, 1677 to 1689, when um, this uh, London Baptist Confession of Faith, it's a chapel library production, very nice little introduction. Um, that came out and... Um, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress for same time. Most fascinating. Um, two different approaches to the defense of the faith and its promulgation. And um, The 1689 ap appeals to the mind, to the teaching of scripture, and it explains it with one biblical statement, proposition after another, chapter 18. Such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus, love him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in a state of grace. That's what it says. An infallible assurance of faith is found, founded on the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel. It's terribly important that um, we do address people's minds and not their emotions. Um, you remember on the Damascus Road, what happened there was not just a, a being overwhelmed by great darkness, but an intellectual revolution took place in the life of Saul of Tarsus. He had a whole new conviction concerning Jesus of Nazareth. But then there's another approach to understanding and grasping the assurance of faith, and, and that is found in, in the Pilgrim's Progress. It appeals through the mind to the affections. It brings Mr. Little Faith and uh, Mr. Doubting and Mr. No Assurance and, and then Mr. Valiant for Truth, Mr. Uncertainty, we'll, we'll say, uh, it, it enfleshes the Christian life, the episodes that we go through, the reality, the livingness of our relationship uh, with God. It, it goes through it by bringing these personalities and putting them under focus and in, under pressure. Now, I'm sure we're all concerned that there are many professing Christians, church members, who lack a true, a credible assurance of faith because they've never understood the gospel of Jesus Christ. They've never appreciated the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of God. They've uh, never been impressed by what we sang um, amazing, breathtaking grace of God. They simply don't know of the infinite kindness of our Heavenly Father. And I believe that as you grasp the gospel, what the gospel is, your assurance goes up. If you don't have a grasp of the gospel, your assurance goes down and down. 
A weak gospel creates weak assurance. A strong Bible doctrine gospel that creates strong assurance of faith. And Christ had them both, didn't he? Christ, um, he had uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 and 6 and 7, that logical, immensely challenging exposition speaking to men's minds. And then um, again in John 13, 14, 15, 16. But then he told these wonderful parables, and the, the parables speak to our affections, don't they? I want to take you to Luke 15 tonight, to the greatest of all the parables, the greatest display of the love of God in Scripture, the parable of the prodigal son. You all know it. Don't yawn. Um, you, many of you have preached it, I hope, many times. I, I want to bring it to your affections this evening so that you will, as a result of being here tonight, have a new assurance of the love of God. That God, the Creator, loves you. That God, the Creator, loves you that God the Creator loves even you. Now, this unforgettable story is an oral portrait of God's redemption. It has its own validity. It has its own finality. The parable is, itself is more accurate and more moving and more profound than a series of straightforward propositions that Jesus would have made uh, about the sin of his hearers and what they have to do about it. The, the picture that he portrays of the prodigal son is very evocative and open-ended, and it remains hooked into a memory cell since the time in Sunday school or when Dad at the table read that chapter, you remembered it, you, and you still remember it now. Uh, and the story itself is more than the three truths that I've gleaned from it that I'm going to present you with an alliteration even. I want this picture to live on tonight and for these next days, the picture then of an old man running to kiss his son and wrap his arms around him and say, I'll never let you go again. First are the rebellion of the son. Jesus tells us of a boy who went to his landowning father and he said to him, give me. And he didn't say, give me a white stallion or give me a coat of many colors. He said, legally now, you are obliged to give me the portion of your property that comes to me. And he was legally bound to do it. All that remained would pass to his older brother. And uh, you see, it would all be evaluated, the herds, the chickens, the cattle, and then the land, 
some soggy, some good, all evaluated, all divided up, and then divided between for his portion now. There are people in traditional cultures, and they, they find it incredible. I have a friend in a multiracial area of London, and um, Friday nights he plays ping pong and uh, pool with teenage boys. And then he tells them a Bible story. And one day he told them this story. And he said to them, what would happen in your country if a boy asked his father for his portion of all that his father possessed? And they talked among themselves. And their spokesman said, he'd kill him. Now, um, there are people who long to cross the border from Mexico and, and come in, want to better themselves and their children. We have this narrow channel that separates Britain from France, and they come in little boats, 44,000 last year, risking their lives in their little boats with their children. They come for a, a, a better world. But in Jesus' culture, it's, it's not like that at all. It would seem shameful because the son was ab abandoning his obligation to his father. You know how it works out still today in those cultures, how you look after your children, you do everything for them, you feed them, you clothe them, you seek to educate them and give your time to them. And then uh, when you're old and frail, they repay that by caring for you in those weak last years of your life. We're told that this son soon got together all he had. He turned it into cash, and he was leaving once for all. He was never going back. He was not returning. Everything was taken. He had no pleasure in his father's company, in the conversations around the table, he proceeded to put as many miles between himself and that old homestead as possible. He found the old life restricting, the old life was suffocating, the old life was narrow, and he headed for a place far away. Jesus describes it as a far country. It wasn't Moab. He went through Moab, through another country. He put as many miles as he could because he'd heard about this, this place where there was fun, fun, fun. He was choosing the life of paganism over the life of the covenant land. He was turning his back, just like rebellious teenagers now restlessly come to church 14, 15, and then they say they're 16 or they're 18, they're not coming anymore. He wanted nothing more to do with home. You know, it's an impossible state. It's an illogical state, isn't it? Because we're made in the image of God, and God's given his great monitor, um, our, the conscience that we have that animals don't have. And that conscience speaks of the moral qualities of God. And God can waken you up at three o'clock in the morning, and it can remind you of that one sin. 
and it can make you groan and you're conscious that you answer to this holy God. So in that new country, the boy made new friends. He learned a new language. He wore new fashions in his clothes. The patterns of the week and the patterns of the, of the year were different, the festivities and so on. He picked up new habits. Now I finally got away from it all, he thought. Nobody knows me here. I don't have dad waiting up for me at 10 o'clock and then asking me why I'm late and where I've been and his frown, his disapproval. He answered to no one and so he tasted the forbidden pleasures of that land. You understand, um, it wasn't that when he went to this distant country he could go to parties. It wasn't when he arrived in this far country he could go to weddings. We can go to parties. We, we Christians... We can go to weddings because Jesus went to parties and Jesus went to weddings. But this man was unrestrained in his sensuality and in his spendthrift ways. His motto was spend, 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 shop till you drop. And he gathered, hangers on. There was a new kid on the block. Have you heard about him? He's on the block. He's got money. He's got the need for friends to support him. And so he sold to the flesh, thinking that's where happiness is to be found. And very soon the money went. No more feasts of fresh veal. No more hunting expeditions. No more bottles of old wine to pour out lavishly amongst all of them that came to his house uh, no more women to buy at all. And soon he didn't have a penny left. It went very, very quickly. And he had no savings. He had no family to turn to. In London, everybody's got an auntie and an uncle. So if they're going to a show or they're going to a conference, there's always auntie so-and-so to stay with. He didn't have an auntie in that distant country. And on top of it all, recession came, a fierce drought and the people from the countryside who had no water and no way of earning anything came into the city. The boom became bust. And the dream had faded in the blinding light of endless burning sun. Heat, heat, heat. His friends were no more. And he was confronted with what America is confronted with and Wales and Britain is confronted with, a groaning world. Life lived under the curse. But he could still fall lower because to the Jew a pig was unclean. He couldn't touch it. He couldn't eat it, certainly. The only job he could get to feed himself was looking after pigs. And he could fall even lower. He'd even eat the very same pods from the feeding trough that the pig, pigs ate from. Sin's a hard master. You leave my Savior. You leave the happy fellowship of God's people. And you're on your own, kid. You're on your own. 
what began as one thrill after another ended in serfdom. He's like the party drinker who becomes an alcoholic. He's like the drug user who becomes an addict. He's like the promiscuous person who gets a sexually transmitted disease and he's getting injections and he's wondering, is he going to lose the ability to beget children? The party had become a prison. You see the picture that you have here. You see the depths to which this boy had fallen. There's no redeeming feature. It doesn't say, but he was kind to animals. It doesn't say that. From the time he asked his father, his extraordinary father, this giant of kindness and patience and love, he asked him, for his portion, and he was off like that. You see, you can allegorize this parable, and you can say, the prodigal is the sinner. You can say that he is a type of every sinner a long way from God. And then before we know it, we are in church on Sunday, and we are seeing decorous and responsible and caring Ladies and men who've been very careful in raising their children, we are saying to them, there you are amongst the prostitutes. There you are amongst the pigs, wasting all that a loving father has given to you. That is not what this parable is about. This is not the spiritual symbol of Mr. Everyman. This is the sinner in the pits this is as far as you can go, as, long, as low as you can fall. This guy is in the gutter. He's on the waterfront. He's on death row. He's the extreme. Low company shows him the door. If ever there was a son and the father opened the door and he saw him, he would shut the door quickly. If ever there was one, he'd say, go away. We don't want you. He's not an ordinary sinner at all. This is the worst. This is the chief. We can think of the angels, just Michael and, uh, and Gabriel, and they are the archangels, and they're talking together. They're looking at this. Have you seen? Look. Is he the worst? Other angels come up and say to them, is this the worst case? Is he worse than King Saul? Is he worse than the Gadarene demoniac? Is he worse than Saul of Tarsus, torturing and killing Christians? Is he the worst? Surely our Lord won't let him in. Surely there's no hope for this one. You see, that's the picture that we are being presented. It means that no one here tonight can ever say, I've, I've been so bad. I've done some awful things in my life. For so long, I've hurt so many people, and I toss and turn, and I think about, how is she? I wonder how she is. I wonder how she's doing. I wonder how things are with her. Here is the worst possible scenario. The most abandoned of men. The most selfish. The most cruel. The most wretched. The most hopeless. The chief of sinners but there's a road from where that fellow is 
to the living God. Wherever you might be today in the depths of your abandonment and hypocrisy and and intellectual arrogance and the pain you've caused to those who love you the most, there's a way for you tonight, now, from where you are to where the love of God is with arms outstretched to welcome you. So that's my first R. The rebellion of this boy. The second R is his repentance. You see, there's a theme that runs through this chapter. And the theme is not that God rejoices in sinners. That's not the theme of the prodigal son. It is that God rejoices in sinners who repent. That's what it's about. You see, the word in verse um, 7 and verse 10, repentance. What, what, what does that mean, those three syllables, repentance? What does it mean? Well, I think it means two or three things, and, and they are beautifully seen here in, in Luke 15. Verse 17, he came to his senses. He saw what he'd done. He realized what his life was at that moment. He knew where he was at. He was far from home. He was penniless. He was homeless. He was hopeless. He was disgraced. He was discredited. He was abandoned. And he came to his senses. Not typical Mr. Everyman from Jackson. The worst, the worst of them. The most despicable, the most heinous of them all. We want you to come to God tonight. And the first step is that you come to your senses. You're aware of who you are and what you've done. Your past. The badness of it all. You'd have thought, you see, that he, he'd come to his senses weeks earlier when he tried this sin and that sin and got drunk and women and, and the next morning well, that wasn't all I thought it would be. That wasn't very exciting, was it? You'd have thought he would have come to himself then. There are some men, you know them, some women, and they're so abandoned. You look at them and you say, he must know just where he's at. The alcoholic, he knows. The addict, he knows. The pedophile, he knows. He realizes what he's doing to his family, how embarrassed his children are, how brokenhearted his wife is, how upset his church is for what he's doing. He must know. Surely he's come to his senses. But you go to the Old Testament and here's 
the man who wrote, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. And he saw a woman, and he lusted for her and sent for her and impregnated her. What shall I do now? She has a brave young husband. I'll get him killed. And the weeks went by after the murder, and the months went by, and David slept at night. And God had to send a prophet to him and tell him a story and lay it on him and say, you're the man, you, you're the man you're so angry with in my story. There are many men and women in Jackson and their sin is staring them in their faces. They haven't come to their senses. We're standing in the forecourt of judgment. We're standing just at the edge of the precipice of eternity, not much longer. And we, what do we, we, we've got a few baubles, a few gewgaws, the toys of our materialism, the remnants of a career. We have some property. We have some family. We have some money, some memories. That's the lot. We haven't come to our senses. We haven't come to ourselves. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. We have our goals. We have our ambitions. We'd like to make 100,000 a year, say, own my own house, have a condo in Florida. We've got certain ideas, and uh, we gather some glittering prizes. And then you remember John Milton at the moment when we think the prize is there, and we've almost got it. Come the blind furies with their abhorred shears, and they cut the thin spun thread. It's all over. It's all over. I don't want to sentimentalize, but I think of the men I knew in power, not personally, of course, but I knew of them. Ronald Reagan. Harold Wilson, who was the Labour Prime Minister for many years. Winston Churchill. You know, at the end of their life, those three men, they lost it all. Didn't know their worth. Their wife coming and talking, didn't know the woman. As for their great achievements, their faces on banknotes, the honors that countries had given them, known in the United Nations, they had no knowledge of those things whatsoever. It speaks so eloquently of how unsubstantial all the prizes that the world gives us are. Because those men had attained so much, and yet at the end, they didn't know. And we are saying, you know, we're not talking fairy tales 
from the Christian pulpit. This isn't Narnia we are talking about. We're talking about reality. The third day he rose from the dead, and it's true. When he spoke, the winds and waves obeyed him, and it's true. My friends, the only reason all of you should become Christians is that the Christian faith is true. There's no other better reason for you to turn from your doubts and your unbelief and look at Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The gospel isn't a call to fantasy. It's just be real. So he came to himself. That's the first thing. That's what repentance is. Secondly, he remembered his father. His father, that, that word father, it only occurs once in the parable so far, but in the next six verses, from 17 verse onwards, seven times, the father, the father, the father. Now that's very important because those of you who know the shorter catechism, when it asks what repentance is, it says repentance begins with an apprehension of the mercy of God. That's where it begins. You start to believe that, oh, you've made a mess of your life and you're wretched and, ah, the temptations to just bring up those images on the screen and it's there and just have one extra drink or just inject yourself once or whatever it is. Oh, you're wretched and proud and arrogant. God is a God of mercy. Tis mercy all immense and free. You know, a man will never repent until he has some hope that things can improve, that things can better, that there's a power above and beyond, a, a mighty power that's joined to mighty love and mighty mercy and mighty forgiveness even for him. Jesus says, him that comes to me, there's no way I'll slam the door in his face. No way. That's what Jesus is saying to you tonight who think you've, you've, you've fallen too deep. Sinners, Jesus will receive. Sound the word of grace to all who the heavenly pathway leave, all who linger, all who fall, sing it o'er and o'er again. Christ, receiver, sinful man. I don't care who you are. I don't care who you've, where you've been. I don't care where you spent last night. Doesn't matter. You turn from that lifestyle and, and, and you come. You come just as you are to him just as he is, full of grace and truth. There's hope. That's an interesting question now. What caused that boy to think of his father? 
somewhere in that boy's youth around the table and as they talked together they had been imprinted indelibly on his consciousness that whenever things went wrong and when they went badly wrong he could always go back home he must he must go home he hadn't been told if you bring disgrace on the family don't come knocking on our door. He hadn't been told, if you let us down, then don't bother to come back. If you bring shame on the family, stay away. No, he'd been told, however bad, however deep the abyss, however appalling the degradation, Son, you must always feel this is your home. And you can come back. I would beg and plead with all you parents here tonight that you give your children the same unconditional security. That your children know that if they face the ultimate in tragedy, they can still come home. If they become drunkards, they can come home. If they marry the wrong people, they can come home. If they get AIDS, they can come home. If they get pregnant, they can come home. If they have an abortion, they can come home. If they end up in prison for something foul, they can come home. They must have. They need to have that assurance. It's one of the most basic elements of the divine pedagogy. Um, all the fathers on earth reflect the fatherhood of, of God. It gives our children some security, some marvelous structure. There's an anchor and there's a chain. And the anchor is deep in dad and mum's love for you. And when he left home under such a cloud and went to the distant city with all the wretched memories of both places, where could he go? And there was this home. And that is repentance. It's double-edged, isn't it? You come to yourself. Ah! Uh, and you come to your father. Oh, for me? And the third thing about repentance is that it's imperfect in the best of us. No one has perfect faith. And no one has perfect repentance. And so there he is and he's thinking about they let me in? Will they welcome me back? I, I, what am I going to say now? So it's, Father, I have uh, sinned against heaven and in thy sight. Uh, I'm not worthy to be called uh, thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. That's what I'll say. And you rehearsed it as slowly he returned on that walk that he had gone with such alacrity and anticipation a few months earlier. He was full of doubt. 
as to the welcome he'd get against this family that he had abused so horribly. So he made this little speech. He said, um, I, I, I know I can't be a member of your family again, but when you send your foreman down at harvest time to the, to the f- town square, I'm there with the other men. Oh, let him catch my eye. I know, I know the farm. I know the fields. I know the brooks. I know where the be- best soil is, where it's soggy. and Make me as a hired servant when the man comes looking for help. These were his thoughts. He'd make peace with his father by what he would do and by what he would say. He'd lost all self-respect. And so, um, well, I'll, I'll try. I plead with him to make me a hired servant. That's what I'll do. Pathetic. This giant of a father that he'd watched, that had begotten him and brought him into the world and loved him and cared for him and made him toys and played with him and taught him all his knowledge, this man of immense grace and graciousness and kindness and sweetness. What a pathetic view of his father he had. I'm saying to you, you don't have to have a great theologically accurate concept of God in order for you to pray to God. You pray in the name of Jesus. And Jesus descends your prayers. You know, there's this little girl, um, mummy goes out to the shop and she goes out to the garden. Daddy says, what you, what you doing? She, I'm picking flowers for mummy. And so she picks flowers and she picks and picks them and then brings, brings them back. Daddy says, can I see them? And she gives them to daddy. He sees she's got poison ivy there and uh, <laughs> she's got dead weeds there and it's a mess. And she's and as he's finished and gives them back to her, the doorbell go- goes and in mummy comes and she runs up and she gives, oh, you're a good girl. And she says, I love you. And she gives her a kiss. That's why we pray in the name of Jesus. That's why he hears us and answers us because we are in Christ. And God loves his people with the same love. The identical love. He makes us joint heirs with Christ. And he loves us with a love that will not let us go. And You don't have to get your pleas for forgiveness and restoration. Exactly right. You don't have to memorize the catechism. And use those words. There can be a lot of confusion mixed with our coming to Christ. God does exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or even think. When we look to him and cast ourselves upon him. This boy was pleading that he should be received as a workman. 
Oh, he was going to have such a joyful surprise. The last thing I want to talk to you about is the return, his return, or his, the reconciliation. Lots of good hours, aren't there? The renewal. <laughs> he finally comes up the hill and he, he looks down. And there's the White House and the smoke from the peat fire coming out of the chimney and he stops. How will it be? He's come home, he knows he was born there. He spent all his happy boyhood years there before this bitterness came in. Six times at least every day, his father pulled the curtain across and looked up the country lane. Nobody there. Day after day, he looked. Looked in hope. Looked in longing. Six times, ten times some days. Looked. And that morning, he pulled the curtain aside. Was there, was there somebody there? He looked again. Yes, there was somebody there. Got out of the chair, walked across, opened the, the farm door and walked across the farmyard and flung the gate open and he looked. Yeah, yeah. It's a young boy and he's, he's standing still. And then he moved. He knew the strut of his son. And he started to go. He started to walk. He couldn't walk. He began to run. Oh, be careful, old man, with your brittle bones. But he was running. The boy might change his mind, and he's running for him. And he gets nearer and nearer, and he can see the darkness and the wrinkles and the dirt and the smell even. And he wraps his arms around him, and he crushes him, and he weeps over him and kisses him. And he says, I'll never let you go again. Never let you go again. Three breathless servants come up. He says, the first one, um, get, get the robe of sonship. You see it's hanging up on the right there in the wardrobe. And the sandals are on the floor of the wardrobe. Um, bring them here. And the second son, he says, um, the ring. Now, it's in the chest of drawers in the living room. It's the second, second drawer down. It's a little black box. You bring that here. And then to the third man, he says, uh, well, we know why we've kept the fatted calf now, don't we? You arrange um, country dancing, all right? Clear the yard. Tell, tell your wives to dress up. And they go about their business. He puts his arm through his son and walks him. Walks him home. Walks him home. What does this mean? In simple teaching, I want you to be sure of your faith. I want you to have strong assurance and strong assurance only comes from understanding the extraordinary grace and mercy and love of almighty God you know the father didn't say 
Oh, so it's you. What are you doing here? Do you know what disgrace you brought on our family? You know, we were a joke for six months. People say, how is the boy doing? Do you know the anxiety you caused your mother? You didn't even send us a letter. You didn't ever tell us you were alive. Why didn't you get in touch with us? Nothing like that whatsoever. There's a party. They're tuning their bagpipes and their banjos. And soon they're going to be dancing and the women self-conscious in the, the rarely worn dress. They're there and they're smiling and there's joy because he was dead and he's alive. He was lost. We couldn't find him. And he's found again and everything is forgotten in the joy of restoration. Well, that's the picture, isn't it? That's Bunyan, isn't it? That's Jesus and the parables, isn't it? And then Matthew 5, 6, 7, and John 13 to 17. It's yet, yes, it's that. But then there are these things. There are these things. The great welcome God gives. You see? When you come as a sinner to Jesus, at that moment, God pardons all our sins, all our past sins, all our present sins, all our future sins. He gives us a new heart. He starts working all things together for our good. He supplies all our needs richly in Christ from that moment onwards. Sin was written all over this boy's face, and he said, Dad, do you want, I'm so sorry, do you want, no, we're not going to talk about it. He doesn't hurl our pasts at us. He doesn't remind us. Satan reminds us that our sins buried, gone. It's not that the father said, okay, you can, you can come as a servant for five years and then we'll have a family conflab and um, we'll decide whether we'll give you the rights of sonship. It's not like that. Sonship. Heir of God. Joint heir with Christ. It is that. He fills us with his Holy Spirit. He baptizes us into the the body of Christ. You say, I'm so afraid to become a Christian because I so admire the Christians in, in the church. They're, they're such wonderful people. I could never live like that. I, I wouldn't keep it up. God will help you. God will. We all started as novices. And he helped us. He's changed us. He's been with us every step of the way. He'll be with you. He will be. I end. 
what happened to this boy. He made his decision. He came to himself. I will set out and go back to my father. No one ever became a Christian without making a decision. Utterly unashamedly, I want every one of you to make a decision tonight. I want you to say, I'm going to my father. I want you to say that. That's, that's what I, I want you to say it from your heart. I'm going to my precious, loving father. That's what I want you to say. You make up your mind now, okay? You come to that decision, okay? This boy was transformed when that father wrapped his arms around and held him tight and loved him. You see, many people, they come to themselves for a while. They turn over the new leaf for a while. You know there are many people who uh, come to a decision for a while. They say, I, I, I'll try religion. I'll, I'll go to God the Father. And that's all it is. It's a decision. Not yet. What saved this boy? What changed this boy? He made a decision. Say that. Fine. He made his decision. He got up and went and kept going until he'd reached the Father. What saved this boy? The incredible, abundant love of God. That's what saved him. The father was there, looking for him, seeking him, saving him. I want you to, you come tonight now. You come. It's time for you to come. You've been on the border of the kingdom of God for a long, long time. Sitting on the fence is ungainly and painful. It's time for you to come down. Come down on kingdom side. And make the journey. Take the first steps tonight. From where you are, to where this welcoming God is. Let's come to ourselves. Let's hear the preaching that comes, that tells you of the mercy of God from this pulpit week after week. A God who is slow, slow to get angry. You, you, come, you come to him. And you make that journey.
We're going to start tonight. No more delays. No more excuses. No more saying, well, I'll do it later. I'll do it at home. I'll do it at my bedside. I'll do it when I'm 16. I'll do it now. Coming to Jesus Christ is when the Holy Spirit takes the words of the gospel that you have heard and he applies it to your heart and your memory and your conscience and speaks words of welcome and mercy and forgiveness to you. That's what he's doing. You come now. You come to Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank thee for our precious Savior and that he told us how great was the love of God in Jesus Christ. Oh, we thank thee that we've been reminded again of how deep the Father's love for us, way beyond all measure. How kind you are. How much you've loved every person here this evening, that you've brought them here to hear this good news. And you've brought me here to preach it to them. This marriage of messenger and message, of vineyard, for fruit. Oh, we pray that everyone, the young people, the old people, the men, the women, the worst sinner amongst us, Maybe that's me, that you wrap a cord of love around him and with a love that won't let him go, draw and draw and pull him until he knows the Father's love, until he has the inward witness of the Holy Spirit. Oh, please, Heavenly Father, grant that blessing. We grow that people can hear this message and go away as unsaved as they came. Forbid it in thy grace. Be merciful to us all, we pray. Give glory to Jesus by the humbling of sinners. Please hear our prayers, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.